0: Audio number 86. Another sermon by Jonathan Edwards entitled Religious Affections. In reality, Religious Affections is a treatise and will take several messages to complete. This treatise entitled Religious Affections was written in 1746. Jonathan Edwards In 1731, after the death of his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, became the sole pastor of his grandfather's church in Northampton, Massachusetts. In 1734, under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, was the genesis of the Great Awakening in Northampton, Massachusetts. George Whitfield arrived on the scene in 1740 as an evangelist whose face became almost as well known as George Washington. Preaching more than 18,000 sermons, mostly in the fields from Maryland to Georgia over a span of 30 years from 1740 to 1770. In 1740, most of our founding fathers were less than 10 years old and thus grew up in this great awakening. However, by 1746, there became many false converts amongst the true converts. But this is how Satan works. He sows tares amongst the wheat. So in 1746, Jonathan Edwards wrote this treatise entitled Religious Affections to try to demonstrate how close you can be to being a true convert and yet be an almost Christian not a true Christian. This treatise is so detailed that to those who are true converts, it encourages greatly. But to those who are false converts, the hope and attention is that these false converts will re-examine their salvation and come to repentance. For their salvation depends upon it. Unfortunately, many times their hearts become hardened and they become enemies of the church. Therefore, before we begin Jonathan Edwards' treatise, let us in America today use self-evident truths to pinpoint the dividing line between false converse and true converse. We can waste a lot of time debating the non-essentials. But martin luther the king of the reformation in 1524 wrote his book bondage of the will in response to erasmus who wrote freedom of the will martin luther thanked erasmus for touching on the vital point the hinge on which everything turns is the will free or bound in salvation in his book martin luther writes free will is a fiction in fact as we have done in many of our other messages, we can prove that free will is a fiction by asking four self-evident truth questions. Question number one, what is the ticket into heaven? What does our gut tell us the ticket into heaven is? Not what the Bible says. The amazing thing is all of us natural men Americans believe the same thing. Answers are usually either love the golden rule, do the best you can, or be kind. In other words, morality that our good will outweigh our evil. So the second question we ask is, are you a liar? Anyone that says no will be laughed off the stage, for we all know we are liars. liar. But sometimes the arrogant moralist will say no. Therefore, we ask him this question. Suppose we put a banner over our bedroom door with this vow written on it. I will never, ever, the rest of my life, so help me God, add to a truth or subtract from the truth. How many minutes can we go before we break this vow? Now, once we say this to our fast food free will moralists, they find very little wiggle room to go on denying that they are a liar by nature. And that lying can only be covered up with our fig leaves of morality, but cannot be eradicated, nor can envy, jealousy, covetousness, etc. So the third question we ask is, who do you lie to the most? Eight out of ten people without any hesitation whatsoever will say that they lie to themselves the most. And the other two will, if they think about it, they will realize that they do lie to themselves the most. So the fourth question we ask is this. If we have ten Jesuses, and they're all lined up, and they're all proclaiming to be the truth, but only one of them is the truth, and we lie to ourselves the most, Will we choose the Jesus that fits our agenda, or will we fit the true Jesus? And all of us, once we think about it, will realize that we will pick the Jesus that fits our agenda. With that, we can eliminate almost all of the over 300,000 churches in America because they are going to admit that they believe that the will is free in salvation. That is, that they believe in the doctrine of free will as opposed to the doctrine of the bondage of the will. Or in other words, they believe that they have a free will to choose Jesus as opposed to Jesus choosing us. And when we say that Jesus is choosing us, what we are really saying is that we have no fingerprints of cooperation with Jesus in Jesus choosing us. It is no different than our natural birth. We have absolutely no control over the day time or place that Jesus will choose us we are the same as the apostle Paul who on Damascus Road had no idea that Jesus was going to show up that day for he had hated Jesus and he'd hated his followers in fact he was on the road to Damascus with a letter from the high priest to bring back more Christians in order to persecute them So, former Mr. Morality, or the Apostle Paul, or Saul, as he was called before he was converted, had no idea that he was one of the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. Or he persecuted not only Jesus, but Jesus' followers for six to eight years after he and his colleagues, that is the Pharisees, helped hand Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Therefore, all of us natural men Americans are born into this world, not knowing whether or not we are one of the elect. And thus, we as natural man Americans all have the same hope, for the thief on the cross was one of the elect, and he had a deathbed election. So as long as we're still breathing, we can hope that Jesus will find us and elect us. The only way we can know whether or not we're one of the elect is after we've been elected. For it's only after we are elected that we are 100% sure that we had no cooperation in our election. We had no cooperation in the day, time, or place it was going to happen. We had no idea that our heart was as evil as it was, and it was not until that moment of election, that we saw our heart as God saw it, and we were willing to condemn ourselves to hell, being in 100% agreement with God that we do not deserve heaven. Well, the only option left at that point is to fly to the righteousness of God in which Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us and took on hell for us. And how do we fly to that righteousness of God? But by faith. But Faith, by definition, is the certainty of the things not seen. And what does it mean to be not seen? But hidden behind their opposite. So the holiness or the righteousness of God is hid behind the wretchedness of our own heart. And that we are in captivity to the law of sin. The law of sin is like the law of gravity. It's the principle of gravity. Principle of gravity is two masses attract each other. And thus, when we get on the bathroom scale, the mass of the earth attracts us and the mass of our body attracts the earth and it pulls us together and we find out what our weight is. So what is the law of sin? Well, what is sin but the breaking of God's commandment? So what is the law of sin? On one hand, if we break the law, we sin. If we lie, we sin. If we commit adultery, we sin. But on the other hand, if we attempt to follow the law, we sin or we lack perfection. And Jesus demands perfection. Not only that, but the fig leaves of morality can only cover over the evil proclivities of our heart, not eradicate them. And common sense tells us that we must be holy to enter heaven. And our fig leaves of morality cannot make us holy. And thus we are unfit for heaven. To prove that we are not holy, if a scantily clad woman passes by, we have to refrain from looking at her immodesty, proving we are an adulterer by nature, just as we always will have to refrain ourselves from lying. Thus, if we follow the law, we sin. We are no different than Adam and Eve, who put on the big leaves of morality to cover over their nakedness. And yet, when they heard the voice of God, they hid themselves. For God could see straight through their fig leaves of morality to their nakedness. And likewise, with x-ray vision, God can see straight through our fig leaves of morality to our evil sin nature, that is, to the evil proclivities of our heart, like adultery, covetousness, etc. No matter how moral we are, God can look through our morality, and he sees that the prostitute and Mr. Morality have the same evil heart. One of them allowed the evil black cat to get out of the heart, and the other one covered over the evil proclivities of his heart. But both of them are being condemned to hell because their heart is evil by nature. And Jesus, who knew no sin, that is, who kept the commandments perfectly for us, was made sin. What sin? He was made original sin by his father, and thus his father had to condemn his own son to hell for his son had taken on our or his elect's original sin for what purpose again he christ that knew no sin was made sin by who by his father made what sin made original sin in order that we his elect might be made the righteousness of god how by faith so let us recap in america today The spiritual war between the bondage of the will and the freedom of the will doctrine is almost non-existent. Whereas in early America, at the time of George Washington, Jefferson, Madison, there was a healthy debate going on between free will and the bondage of the will. But the bondage of the will doctrine was dominant during that time period, including Jonathan Edwards' church. The bondage of the will was the dominant doctrine of the doctrinal statements of the churches at that time whereas today the doctrinal statements of the churches are almost exclusively the doctrine of the freedom of the will therefore to distinguish in america today the true jesus over the false jesus we can simply ask one question to our american pastors and friends the question is this, do you believe that the will is free or bound in salvation? Do we believe that Jesus chooses us or we choose Jesus? And when Jesus chooses us, do we have zero, zip, nada, fingerprints of cooperation upon our conversion? If our fast food free will theologians and friends have any cooperation in their salvation, then we know that it is a false conversion. And we proved that without even using the Bible. We proved it with those four questions. They were simply self-evident truths. Martin Luther, who ignited bondage of the will reformation in 1517, culminating in the pilgrims coming to America with The Bondage of the Will Doctrine in 1620. The Puritans in 1630. Harvard being established in 1636. Yale in 1701. And the New Jersey College in 1746, which eventually became Princeton, adhered to the Bondage of the Will Doctrine. In 1524, Martin Luther wrote his most famous book entitled The Bondage of the Will in Response to Erasmus, who wrote Freedom of the will and in that book he calls free will a fiction where martin luther completely obliterates erasmus's freedom of the will doctrine however we must remember that satan is the ultimate counterfeiter and he is relentless in such a manner as even the bondage of the will churches become lukewarm because they become filled with pastors who say they believe the bondage of the will doctrine, but in reality, they themselves have never been truly elected. And they may say they love their Bibles and love studying their Bibles, but in reality it is no different than a love for geometry or the a love for studying history books. We may have a passion for Shakespeare or a passion for Euclidean geometry. But this is totally different than experiencing the literal love of Jesus Christ who the Apostle Paul, who was one of the worst persecutors of the church, after he was converted says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it is Christ that lives in me. Former Miss Morality also writes, if we have not experienced the spirit of christ in us we are reprobates not true christian this love via the spirit of christ living in us is an experiential love far superior to any human love with that let us commence with the reading of jonathan edwards introduction to his own treatise introduction quote there is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind And what is more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Or which comes to the same thing. What is the nature of true religion? And wherein do lie the distinguishing notes of that virtue and holiness that is acceptable in the sight of God. But though it be of such importance, and though we have clear and abundant light in the word of God to direct us in this matter. Yet there is no one point wherein professing Christians do more differ one from another. It would be endless to reckon up the variety of opinions in this point that divide the Christian world, making manifest the truth of that declaration of our Savior, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it the consideration of these things has long engaged me jonathan edwards to attend to this matter with the utmost diligence and care and exactness of search and inquiry that I have been capable of. It is a subject on which my mind has been peculiarly intent ever since I first entered on the study of divinity. But as to the success of my inquiries, it must be left to the judgment of the reader of the following treatise. I am sensible. It is much more difficult to judge impartially of that which is the subject of this discourse in the midst of the dust and smoke of such a state of controversy as this land is now in about the things of this nature. As it is more difficult to write impartially, so it is more difficult to read impartially. Many will probably be hurt in their spirits to find so much that appertains to religious affections here condemned, and perhaps indignation and contempt will be excited in others by finding so much here and justified and approved. And it may be some will be ready to charge me with inconsistency with myself in so much approving some things and so much condemning others. As I have found, this has always been objected to by some ever since the beginning of our late controversies about religion. It is a hard thing to be hearty, zealous friend of what has been good and glorious in the late extraordinary appearances and to rejoice much in it. And at the same time, to see the evil and pernicious tendency of what has been bad and earnestly to oppose that. But yet, I am humbly but fully persuaded we shall never be in the way of truth, nor go on in a way acceptable to God and tending to the advancement of Christ's kingdom till we do so. There is indeed something very mysterious in it that so much good and so much bad should be mixed together in the church of God as it is a mysterious thing. And what has puzzled and amazed many a good Christian that there should be that which is so divine and precious as the saving grace of God and the new and divine nature dwelling in the same heart with so much corruption, hypocrisy, and iniquity in a particular saint. Yet neither of these is more mysterious than real, and neither of them is a new or rare thing. It is no new thing that much false religion should prevail at a time of great reviving of true religion and that at such a time multitudes of hypocrites should spring up among true saints. It was so in that great reformation and revival of religion that was in Josiah's time as appears by Jeremiah 3.10 and chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And also by the great apostasy that there was in the land so soon after his reign, so it was in that great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews that was in the days of John the Baptist, as appears by the great apostasy of that people so soon after so general an awakening and the temporary religious comforts and joys of many, John five thirty five. Ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. So it was in those great commotions that were among the multitude occasioned by the preaching of Jesus Christ, of the many that were then called, but few were chosen of that multitude that were roused and affected by his preaching. And at one time or another appeared mightily engaged, full of admiration of Christ and elevated with joy. But few were true disciples that stood the shock of the great trials that came afterwards. And endured to the end. Many were like the stony ground or the thorny ground, and but few comparatively like the good ground. Of the whole heap that was gathered, great part was chaff that the wind afterwards drove away. And the heap of wheat that was left was comparatively small, as appears abundantly by the history of the New Testament. So it was in that great outpouring of the Spirit that was in the apostles' days, as appears by Matthew chapter twenty-four, verse ten through thirteen, Galatians three one and four eleven, Philippians chapter two, verse twenty-one and three, verse eighteen and nineteen, and the two epistles to the Corinthians, and many other parts of the New Testament. And so it was in the great reformation from popery. It appears plainly to have been in the visible church of God in the times of the great reviving of religion from time to time as it is with the fruit trees in the spring. There are a multitude of blossoms, all of which appear fair and beautiful. And there is a promising appearance of young fruits, but many of them are but of short continuance they soon fall off and never come to maturity. Not that it is to be supposed that it will always be so. For though there never will in this world be an entire purity either in particular saints in a perfect freedom from mixtures of corruption or in the church of God without any mixture of hypocrites with saints and counterfeit religion, and false appearances of grace with true religion and real holiness. Yet it is evident that there will come a time of much greater purity in the church of God than has been in ages past. It is plain by these texts of scripture, Isaiah 52.1, Ezekiel 44.6 and 7, Joel 3.17, Zechariah 14, 21, Psalm 69, 32, 35, and 36, Isaiah 35, 8, and 10, chapter 4, 3, and 4, Ezekiel 20, 38, Psalm 37, verses 9, 10, 21, and 29. And one great reason of it will be that at that time, God will give much greater light to his people to distinguish True religion and its counterfeits, Malachi 3 3. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. With verse 18, which is a continuation of the prophecy of the same happy times. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. It is by the mixture of counterfeit religion with true, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil had his greatest advantage against the cause of kingdom of Christ all along hitherto it is by this means principally that he has prevailed against all revivings of religion that ever have been sheen the first founding of the christian church by this he hurt the cause of christianity in and after the apostolic age, much more than by all the persecutions of both Jews and heathens. The apostles, in all their epistles, show themselves much more concerned at the former mischief than the latter. By this, Satan prevailed against the reformation began by Luther, Zwinglius, to put a stop to its progress and bring it to disgrace ten times more than by all those bloody, cruel, and before unheard of persecutions of the Church of Rome. By this principally has he prevailed, that is, Satan has prevailed against revivals of religion that have been in our nation since the Reformation. By this he prevailed against New England to quench the love and spoil the joy of her espousals about a hundred years ago. And I think I have had opportunity enough to see plainly that by this the devil has prevailed against the late great revival of religion in New England. So happy and promising in its beginning, here most evidently has been the main advantage Satan has had against us. By this he has foiled us. It is by this means, that the daughter of Zion in this land now lies on the ground in such piteous circumstances as we now behold her. With her garments rent, her face disfigured, her nakedness exposed, her limbs broken and weltering in the blood of her own wounds and in no wise able to arise. And this so quickly after her late great joys and hopes. Lamentations 1.0. 17. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries shall be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. I have seen the devil prevail the same way against the two great revivings of religion in this country." Satan goes on with mankind as he began with them. He prevailed against our first parents and cast them out of paradise and suddenly brought all their happiness and glory to an end by appearing to be a friend to their happy paradise state and pretending to advance it to higher degrees. So the same cunning serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety by perverting us from the simplicity that is in Christ, hath suddenly prevailed to deprive us of that fair prospect we had a little while ago of a kind of paradisiac state of the Church of God in New England. After religion has revived in the Church of God and enemies appear, people that are engaged to defend its cause are commonly most exposed, where they are sensible of danger, while they are wholly intent upon the opposition that appears openly before them, to make head against that and do neglect carefully to look all around them. The devil comes behind them and gives them a fatal stab unseen and has opportunity to give a more home stroke and wound the deeper because he strikes at his leisure and according to his pleasure, being obstructed by no guard or resistance. And so it is ever likely to be in the church whenever religion revives remarkably till we have learned well to distinguish between true and false religion, between saving affections and experiences and those manifold fair shows and glistering appearances by which They are counterfeited, the consequences of which when they are not distinguished are often inexpressibly dreadful. By this means, the devil gratifies himself by bringing it to pass that that should be offered to God by multitudes under a notion of a pleasing, acceptable service to him that is indeed above all things abominable to him. By this means, he deceives great multitudes about the state of their souls, making them think they are something when they are nothing, and so eternally undoes them, and not only so, but establishes many in a strong confidence of their eminent holiness, who are in God's sight some of the vilest of hypocrites. By this means, he many ways damps and wounds religion in the hearts of the saints obscures and deforms it by corrupt mixtures causes their religious affections woefully to degenerate and sometimes for a considerable time to be like the manna that bread worms and stank and dreadfully ensnares and confounds the minds of others of the saints and brings them into great difficulties and temptations and entangles them in a wilderness out of which they can by no means extricate themselves by this means satan mightily encourages the hearts of open enemies of religion and strengthens their hands and fills them with weapons and makes strong their fortresses when at the same time religion and the church of god lie exposed to them as a city without walls by this means he brings it to pass that men work wickedness under a notion of doing god service and so sin without restraint yea with earnest forwardness and zeal and with all their might By this means he brings in even the friends of religion insensibly to themselves to do the work of enemies by destroying religion in a far more effectual manner than open enemies can do under a notion of advancing it. By this means the devil scatters the flock of Christ and sets them one against another, and that with great heat of spirit under a nation of zeal for God. And religion, by degrees, generates into vain jangling. And during the strife, Satan leads both parties far out of the right way, driving each to great extremes, one on the right hand and the other on the left, according as he finds they are most inclined or most easily moved and swayed till the right path in the middle is almost wholly neglected. And in the midst of this confusion, the devil has great opportunity to advance his own interests and make it strong in ways innumerable, and get the government of all into his own hands and work his own will. And by what is seen of the terrible consequences of the counterfeit religion, when not distinguished from true religion, God's people in general have their minds unhinged and unsettled in things of religion and know not where to set their foot or what to think or do and many are brought into doubts whether there be anything in religion and heresy and infidelity and atheism greatly prevail therefore it greatly concerns us to use our utmost endeavors clearly to discern and have it well settled and established wherein true religion does consist. Till this be done, it may be expected that the great revivings of religion will be but of short continuance. Till this be done, there is but little good to be expected of all our warm debates in conversation and from the press, not knowing clearly and distinctly what we ought to contend for. My design is to contribute my might and use my best, however feeble endeavors to this end the ensuing treatise. Wherein it must be noted that my design is somewhat diverse from the design of what I have formerly published, which was to show the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, including both his common and saving operations. But what I aim at now is to show the nature and signs, the gracious operations of God's Spirit, by which they are to be distinguished from all things whatsoever, that the minds of men are the subjects of, which are not of a saving nature. If I have succeeded in this my aim, in any tolerable measure, I hope it will tend to promote the interest of religion." And whether I have succeeded to bring any light to this subject or no, and however my attempts may be reproached in these haptious and sensuous times, I hope in the mercy of a gracious God for the acceptance of the sincerity of my endeavors and hope also for the candor and prayers of the true followers of the meek and charitable Lamb of God. Now let us commence with Jonathan Edwards' treatise entitled religious affections part one which is entitled concerning the nature of the affections and their importance in religion and jonathan edwards begins with the scripture first peter chapter 1 verse 8 whom having not seen Ye love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In these words, the Apostle represents the state of the minds of the Christians he wrote to under the persecutions they were then the subjects of. These persecutions are what he has respect to in the two preceding verses when he speaks of the trial of their faith and of their being in heaviness through manifold temptations. Such trials are of threefold benefit to true religion. Hereby the truth of it is manifest, and it appears to be indeed true Religion; They, above all other things, have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. Hence, they are called by the name of trials in the verse nextly preceding the text and in innumerable other places. They try the faith and religion of professors of what sort it is, as apparent gold is tried in fire and manifested, whether it be true, gold, or no. And the faith of true Christians, being thus tried and proved to be true, is found to praise and honor and glory as in the preceding verse and then these trials are of further benefit to true religion they not only manifest the truth of it but they make its genuine beauty and amiableness remarkably to appear true virtue never appears so lovely as when it is most oppressed. And the divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials. Then it is that true faith appears much more precious than gold. And upon this account is found to praise and honor and glory. And again, another benefit that such trials are of to true religion is that they purify and increase it they not only manifest it to be true but also tend to refine it and deliver it from those mixtures of that which is false which encumber and impede it that nothing may be left But that which is true, they tend to cause the amiableness of true religion to appear to the best advantage as was before observed. And not only so, but they tend to increase its beauty by establishing and confirming it and making it more lively and vigorous and purifying it from those things that obscured its luster and glory. As gold, that is tried in the fire, is purged from its alloy and all remainders of dross and comes forth more solid and beautiful. So true faith, being tried as gold, is tried in the fire, becomes more precious, and thus also is found unto praise and honor and glory, the Apostle seems to have respect to each of these benefits, that persecutions are of to true religion in the verse preceding the text. And in the text, the Apostle observes how true religion operated in the Christians he wrote to under their persecutions, whereby these benefits of persecution appeared in them. Or what manner of operation of true religion in them. It was whereby their religion under persecution was manifested to be true religion and eminently appeared in the genuine beauty and amiableness of true religion and also appeared to be increased and purified. So it was like to be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And there were two kinds of operation or exercise of true religion in them under their sufferings that the apostle takes notice of in the text wherein these benefits appear. Number one, love to Christ whom having not seen, you love. The world was ready to wonder what strange principle it was that influenced them to expose themselves to such great sufferings, to forsake the things that were seen and renounce all that was dear and pleasant, which was the object of sense. They seemed to the men of the world about them as though they were beside themselves and to act as though they hated themselves. There was nothing in their view that could induce them thus to suffer and support them under and carry them through such trials. But although there was nothing that was seen, nothing that the world saw or that the Christians themselves ever saw with their bodily eyes, that thus influenced and supported them, yet they had a supernatural principle of love to something unseen. They loved Jesus Christ, for they saw him spiritually, whom the world saw not, and whom they themselves had never seen with bodily eyes. Number two, joy in Christ. Though their outward sufferings were very grievous, yet their inward spiritual joys were greater than their sufferings, and these supported them and enabled them to suffer with cheerfulness. There are two things which the apostle takes notice of in the text concerning this joy. Number one, the manner in which it rises, the way in which Christ, though unseen, is the foundation of it, that is, by faith which is the evidence of things not seen, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice. Number two, the nature of this joy. It's unspeakable and full of glory, unspeakable in the kind of it, very different from worldly joys and carnal delights of a vastly more pure sublime and heavenly nature being something supernatural and truly divine and so ineffably excellent. The sublimity and exquisite sweetness of which there were no words to set forth, unspeakable also in degree, it pleasing God to give them this holy joy with a liberal hand, and in large measure in their state of persecution their joy was full of glory although the joy was unspeakable and no words were sufficient to describe it yet something might be said of it and no words more fit to represent its excellency than these that it was full of glory or as it is in the original, glorified joy. In rejoicing with this joy, their minds were filled, as it were, with a glorious brightness, and their natures exalted and perfected. It was a most worthy, noble rejoicing that did not corrupt and debase the mind as many carnal joys do, but did greatly beautify and dignify it it was a prolibation of the joy of heaven that raised their minds to a degree of heavenly blessedness it filled their minds with the light of god's glory and made themselves to shine with some communication of that glory hence the proposition or doctrine that i would raise from these words is this, doctrine. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. We see that the apostle, in observing and remarking the operations and exercises of religion in the Christians, he wrote to, wherein their religion appeared to be true and of the right kind, when it had its greatest trial of what sort it was, being tried by persecution as gold is tried in the fire, and when their religion not only proved true, but was most pure and cleansed from its dross and mixtures of that which was not true, and when religion appeared in them most in its genuine excellency, and native beauty, and was found to praise and honor and glory. He singles out the religious affections of love and the affections of joy that were then in exercise in them. These are the exercises of religion he takes notice of wherein their religion did thus appear true and pure and in its proper glory. Part two, the second thing proposed, which was to observe some things that render it evident that true religion in great part consists in the affections. And here, number one, what has been said of the nature of the affection makes this evident and may be sufficient without adding anything further to put this matter out of doubt. For who will deny that true religion consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercises of the heart? That true Religion, which God requires and will accept, does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us up but a little above a state of indifference. God, in his word, greatly insists upon it that we, be good in earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engage in religion. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Be ye fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Deuteronomy ten twelve. 12. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord the God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And chapter six, verse four and six, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy might. It is such a fervent, vigorous engagedness of the heart in the religion That is the fruit of a real circumcision of the heart or true regeneration. And that has the promises of life. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. That is. Live means that we might have eternal life. If we be not in good earnest in religion and our wills and inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our heart to their nature and importance unless they be lively and powerful. In nothing is vigor in our actings of our inclinations so requisite as in religion. And in nothing is lukewarmness so odious. True religion is evermore a powerful thing. And the power of it appears in the first place in the inward exercises of it in the heart. Where is the principle and original seat of it? Hence, true religion is called the power of godliness in distinction from the external appearances of it that are the form of it, Second Timothy 3, 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. The Spirit of God in those that have sound and solid religion is a spirit of powerful, holy affection. And therefore, God is said to have given the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And such when they receive the spirit of God in his sanctifying and saving influences are said to be baptized with the Holy Ghost with fire. By the reason of the power and fervor of those exercises, the spirit of God excites in their hearts, whereby their hearts when grace is in exercise may be said to burn within them. As is said of the disciples, Luke, Chapter 24, verse 32. The business of religion is from time to time compared to those exercises wherein men are wont to have their hearts and strength greatly exercised and engaged, such as running, wrestling, or agonizing for a great prize or crown, and fighting with strong enemies that seek our lives and warring as those that by violence take a city or kingdom. And though true grace has various degrees and there are some that are but babes in Christ in whom the exercise of the inclination and will towards divine and heavenly things is comparatively weak. Yet everyone that has the power of godliness in his heart has his inclination and heart exercised towards God and divine things with such strength and vigor that these holy exercises do prevail in him above all carnal or natural affections and are effectual to overcome them. For every true disciple of Christ loves him, loves Christ above father or mother, wife and children, brethren and sisters, houses and lands, yea, than his own life. From whence it follows that wherever true religion is, there are vigorous exercises of the inclination and will toward divine objects. But by what was said before, the vigorous Lively and sensible exercises of the will are no other than the affections of the soul. Number two, the author of the human nature has not only given affections to men, but has made them very much the spring of men's actions. As the affections do not only necessarily belong to the human nature, but are a very great part of it. So, inasmuch as by regeneration persons are renewed in the whole man and sanctified throughout, holy affections do not only necessarily belong to true religion, but are a very great part of it. And as true religion is of a practical nature, and god has so constituted the human nature that the affections are very much the spring of men's actions this also shows that true religion must consist very much in the affections such is man's nature that he is very inactive any otherwise than he is influenced by some affection either love or hatred desire hope fear or some other these affections we see to be the springs that set men a going in all the affairs of life and engage them in all their pursuits these are the things that put men forward and carry them along in all their worldly business and especially Are men excited and animated by these in all affairs wherein they are earnestly engaged and which they pursue with vigor we see the world of mankind to be exceedingly busy and active the affections of men are the springs of the motion take away all love and hatred all hope and fear all anger and zeal and affectionate desire And the world would be, in a great measure, motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity amongst mankind or any earnest pursuit whatsoever. It is affection that engages the covetous man and him that is greedy of worldly profits in his pursuits. And it is by the affections that the ambitious man is put forward in pursuit of worldly glory. And it is the affections also that actuate the voluptuous man in his pursuit of pleasure and sensual delights. The world continues from age to age in a continual commotion and agitation in a pursuit of these things, but take away all affection. And the spring of all this motion would be gone. And the motion itself would cease. And as in worldly things, worldly affections are very much the spring of men's motion and action. So in religious matters, the spring of their action is very much religious affection. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. Number three. Nothing is more manifest, in fact, than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls, no further than they affect them. There are multitudes that often hear the word of God, and therein hear of those things that are infinitely great and important and that most nearly concern them, and all that is heard seems to be wholly ineffectual upon them. And to make no alteration in their disposition or behavior and the reason is they are not affected with what they hear there are many that often hear of the glorious perfections of god his almighty power and boundless wisdom his infinite majesty and that holiness of god by which he is of purer eyes than they behold evil, and cannot look on iniquity, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, and of God's infinite goodness and mercy, and hear of the great works of God's wisdom, power, and goodness, wherein there appear the admirable manifestations of these perfections. They hear particularly of the unspeakable love of God and Christ, and of the great things that Christ has done and suffered, and of the great things of another world, of eternal misery and bearing the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and of endless blessedness and glory in the presence of God, and the enjoyment of his dear love. They also hear of the peremptory commands of God, and his gracious counsels and warnings, and the sweet invitations of the gospel. I say, they often hear these things and yet remain as they were before with no sensible alteration in them, either in heart or practice, because they are not affected with what they hear and ever will be so till they are affected. I am bold to assert that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw that had not his affections moved. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation. Never were any such brought to cry after wisdom and lift up their voice for understanding and to wrestle with God in prayer for mercy. And never was one humbled and brought to the foot of God from anything that ever he heard or imagined of his own unworthiness and deserving of God's displeasure. Nor was ever one induced to fly for refuge unto Christ while his heart remained unaffected. Nor was there ever a saint awakened out of a cold, lifeless flame or recovered from a declining state in religion and brought back from a lamentable departure from God without having his heart affected. And in a word, there never was anything considerable brought to pass in the heart or life of any man living by the things of religion that had not his heart Deeply affected by those things. Number four, the Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affection, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. The Scriptures place much of religion in godly fear, insomuch that it is often spoken of as the character of those that are truly religious persons, that they tremble at God's word, that they fear before him, that their flesh trembles for fear of him and that they are afraid of his judgments, that his excellency makes them afraid and his dread falls upon them and the like, and a compilation commonly given the saints in Scripture is fearers of God or they that fear the Lord. And because the fear of God is a great part of true godliness, hence true godliness in general is very commonly called by the name of the fear of God. As everyone knows, that knows anything of the bible so hope in god and in the promises of his word is often spoken of in the scripture as a very considerable part of true religion it is mentioned as one of the three great things which religion consists 1st corinthians 13:13 13, 13. hope in the lord is also frequently mentioned as the character of the saints, Psalm one hundred forty six, five. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Jeremiah seventeen seven. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. Psalm thirty one twenty four. Be of good courage, and ye shall strengthen your heart all ye that Hope in the Lord and the like in many other places. Religious fear and hope are once and again joined together as jointly constituting the character of the true saints. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Hope is a great part of true religion. That the apostle says, we are saved by hope, Romans 8, 24. And this is spoken of as the helmet of the Christian soldier, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation and the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, which preserves it from being cast away by the storms of this evil world, Hebrews 6:19, which hope we have, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. It is spoken of as a great fruit and benefit which true saints receive by Christ's resurrection. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his great mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The scriptures place religion very much in the affection of love, in love to God and the Lord Jesus Christ and love to the people of God and to mankind. The text in which this is manifest both in the old testament and the new are innumerable but of this more afterwards the contrary affection of hatred also as having sin for its object is spoken of in scriptures as no inconsiderable part of true religion it is spoken of as that by which true religion may be known and distinguished proverbs 8:13 the fear of the lord is to hate evil and accordingly the saints are called upon to give evidence of their sincerity by this psalm ninety seven ten. ye that love the lord hate evil and the psalmist often mentions it as an evidence of his sincerity psalm 2 3 i will walk within my house with a perfect heart i will set no wicked things before my eyes I hate the work of them that turn aside. Psalm 119, 104. I hate every false way. So verse 127, again, Psalm 139, 21. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? So holy desire exercised in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness is often mentioned in Scripture as an important part of true religion. Isaiah 26, 8. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 as the heart panneth after water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, one and two. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Psalm 119, 20. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. So Psalm 73, 25, 143, 6. 136 etc such a holy desire and thirst of soul is mentioned as one thing which renders or denotes a man truly blessed in the beginnings of christ's sermon on the mount matthew 5 6 blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled And this holy thirst is spoken of as a great thing in the condition of a participation of the blessings of eternal life. Revelation 21, six. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The scriptures speaks of holy joy as a great part of true religion. So it is represented in the text. And as an important part of religion, it is often exhorted and pressed with great earnestness. Psalm thirty-seven, four: "Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart." Psalm ninety-seven, twelve: "Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous." So, Psalm thirty-three, one: "Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous." Matthew five, twelve: "Rejoice and be exceedingly glad." Philippians 3, 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And chapter 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen Rejoice evermore. Psalm 149, 2. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. This is mentioned among the principal fruits of the spirit of grace. Galatians 5, 21. The fruit of the spirit is love. The psalmist mentions his holy joy as an evidence of his sincerity. Psalm 119, 14. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies and much as in all riches. Religious sorrow, mourning, and brokenness of heart are also frequently spoken of as a great part of true religion these things are often mentioned as distinguishing qualities of the true saints and a great part of their character matthew 5 4 blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted psalm thirty four eighteen the lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save us such as are of a contrite spirit. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Lord hath anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all that mourn. This godly sorrow and brokenness of heart is often spoken of not only as a great thing in the distinguishing character of the saints, but that in them, which is peculiarly acceptable and pleasing to God. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high place, in the holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Chapter 66, 2. To this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. Another affection often mentioned as that in the exercise of which much of true religion appears is gratitude, especially as exercise in thankfulness and praise to God. This being so much spoken of in the book of Psalms and other parts of the Holy Scriptures, I need not mention particular texts. Again, the Holy Scriptures. Do frequently speak of compassion or mercy as a very great and essential thing in true religion, insomuch that good men are in Scripture denominated from thence, and a merciful man and a good man are equivalent terms in Scripture. Isaiah fifty-seven one: the righteous perishes, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away. And the scripture chooses out of this quality as that by which in a peculiar manner a righteous man is deciphered. Psalm 37, 21, the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. And verse 26, he is ever merciful and lendeth. And Proverbs 14, 21, he that honoreth the Lord hath mercy on the poor. And Colossians three, twelve put ye on as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercy. This is one of those great things by which those who are truly blessed are described by our Savior, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And this Christ also speaks of as one of the weightier matters of the law, Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, to the like purpose is that, Micah 6, 8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justice, and love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God." And also that Hosea six six for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, which seems to have been a text much delighted in by our Savior, by his manner of citing it once and again, Matthew nine, thirteen and twelve, seven. Zeal is also spoken of as a very essential part of the religion of true saints. It is spoken of as a great thing Christ had in view in giving himself for our redemption. Titus two fourteen. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works and this is spoken of as a great thing wanting in the laodiceans revelation chapter 3 verse 15 16 and 19 i have mentioned but of a few texts amidst the multitude of them all over the scripture which place religion very much in the affections but what has been observed may be sufficient to show that they who would deny that much of true religion lies in the affections and maintain the contrary must throw away what we have been wont to own for our bible and get some other rule by which to judge of the nature of religion so let us in there with the reading of Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, and we will pick it up again at another time. In order for us not to become personally offended at a treatise like this, let us remind ourselves that those pastors who have truly been elected and had no fingerprints of cooperation on their election were just like us Natural Men Americans that haven't been elected. And they are trying to tell us that they themselves were just like we Natural Men Americans are today. They were dead fish floating downstream towards the falls of perdition. And it wasn't until after they became a live fish swimming upstream against the current of the world that the world was just like they were before they were converted. And they, like us natural men, Americans, before they were converted, hated the true gospel just as we hate the true gospel. And why is it that we know that we are born into this world hating the gospel? Is because there is a spiritual war going on. If we remember from Genesis 3.15 that God put a curse between Satan and Eve and between Satan's seed and Eve's seed, God put enmity or hatred. And thus, none of us naturally want to hear the gospel because the gospel reproves us. And again, this began at the first family. When Abel tried to explain things to Cain, Cain came to hate Abel and eventually murdered Abel. So if this treatise of religious affections by Jonathan Edwards begins to offend us as he begins to prove how close we can become to being a true Christian and yet still be an almost Christian, let us pray to God that God would soften our hearts and allow us to repent rather than be offended and that offense turns into hatred. Former Mr. Morality himself, one of the worst persecutors of the church before he was converted, reminds us what he himself full well knew, that he should have been examining himself and asking God to soften his heart, that he might hear Jesus, but he did just the opposite. He hardened his heart and eventually helped Hand Jesus over to be crucified and then persecuted his followers for six to eight years more before Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and converted him. So he writes to his brethren in Corinth and writes them, Don't mess up like I did. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 15. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How? That Jesus Christ is in you. In other words, Jesus Christ literally lives in you. Except you be reprobates. And then in Galatians two twenty, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but it is Christ that lives in me. The life I now live is not by my own faith, but by the faith of the son of God. It is Christ's supernatural faith that now works by love. And I go out and preach the gospel just as Peter, John, and the disciples did. Fisherman Peter says it this way. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Verse 11. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and savior jesus christ verse 12 wherefore i will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things though you know them and be established in the present truth verse 13 Yea, i think it meet as long as i am in this tabernacle that is, his body to stir you up by putting you in remembrance verse 14 knowing that shortly i must put off this my tabernacle that is his body even as our lord jesus christ hath showed me verse 15 moreover i will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance verse 16 for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of the coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And once again, Fisherman Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, in order that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that, ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen to be continued. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.